Hello and welcome to the Sports Weekly Podcast. On this podcast, we'll be taking a look back at careers that were shortened or athletes who never had a chance to maybe live up to their potential for various reasons, drugs, injuries, untimely deaths, and uh, we'll touch on that on this podcast. I'm Pat Cameron, along with Matt Rosenberg and Ron Pecorini. Thanks for listening here on the Sports Weekly Podcast. Guys, I got the idea for this podcast. Uh, There's a new book out on Joe Namath. In fact, uh, he helped write it. It's called All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. And I picked up the book. I haven't gotten very far into it, so I I really can't do any kind of a book review. But it reminded me that uh, there are so many athletes out there whose careers were shortened. Uh, Maybe guys were cheated out of a career uh, for various reasons. As we mentioned, injuries, drugs, untimely deaths. Uh, And that's what we're going to touch on here on this podcast. And I want to start with Joe Namath. Because here's a guy who had very bad knees. Um, His knee problems go back to Alabama. Uh, in fact, there are some people who think that Bear Bryant may have had Joe Namath play on a torn ACL in the Orange Bowl towards the end of his career. Of course, they didn't know it was torn uh, at that time. That was not a very common injury like it is now. And perhaps that was the start of Joe Namath's knee problems. He would eventually have knee problems on both knees, have numerous surgeries, and uh, by the end of his career could barely run. It was, it was kind of sad just to watch him play at the end of his career. The thing about Namath is that when you look at his career, the first four or five years were awesome. 1968, he leads the Jets to Super Bowl III, which was played in January of 69. They upset the Baltimore Colts. The Jets would make the playoffs the following year in, in 1969. Unfortunately for them, they were eliminated by the Kansas City Chiefs in the first round, and that was it. Joe Namath would never make it back to the playoffs. And just to show you how bad his knee injuries were, Namath played in only five games in 1970. He only played in four games in 1971. 1972 was a nice season for him. He had a six-touchdown game against the Baltimore Colts. But in 1973, again, Namath would only play in six games. And in 1974, that was kind of his last hurrah when he threw 20 touchdown passes, which at that time was a considerable number. not like today when guys throw 20 touchdown passes in six weeks. You know, the NFL wasn't that way back then. And then he would hang on for a couple of more years, eventually go to the Rams in 1977, and he would play the first three or four games, and then that was it. He was taken out on a Monday night game at Soldier Field against the Bears, and he would never play again for the Rams. He was 34 years old when he retired. So you look at Joe Namath, you look at his ability, um, you know, if he could have played in 70, 71, 73, if his knees had been healthy, you know, there's just no telling what Joe Namath would have done. Maybe he would have won another Super Bowl. Let me tell you, what Joe Namath did in New York for the Jets itself, um, he he was also known as Broadway Joe. I mean, talking about the pizzazz, the... <laughs> The individual makeup of a man coming out of Alabama, sense, um, to take over New York City at a time when um, New York was hot. It was hot in sports. The the Knicks were happening. The Mets even were happening at that time. Uh, there was so much going on in sports, and Broadway came to to its head. Even uh, even uh, more than Walt Frazier. Walt Clyde, as they call him, 
uh, he made New York his hometown. He took over New York, and he made the Jets uh, who they were at the time a, a nobody and made put them on the map, especially taking them to the Super Bowl and beating the, the Colts at the time. And Johnny Yu, at the time, I would say, was the best quarterback mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And he just gave all athletes that, that weren't on the top uh, of the shelf, to say, a uh, chance to believe in themselves. And, you know, if Joe Willie can do it, anyone can do it. And and just the lifestyle and the way he ran New York, it, it was in his hands. He could have done no wrong. And those in that injury, yes, he could have held on. He could have been with the Jets a little bit longer if they just saw the decline in him. And if he was just a little bit better, uh, just if he could have done it, he would have probably retired as a Jet and uh, probably been more in the record books uh, as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. I've I've always liked Joe Namath. I, I, I like the way he played quarterback. He had that style where you just kind of glide back into the pocket and then, boom, the ball was out. And I'll never forget, every once in a while, NFL Films will show a highlight, and it's opening day, and I don't remember if it's 1968 or 69, but the Jets are playing at Old Municipal Stadium in Kansas City against the Chiefs, and you see Joe Namath fade back into the pocket with that glide that he had, just so smooth. And I, I swear, he barely moves his arm. It was like a flick of the wrist, and the ball went about 50 yards in the air to Don Maynard. I, I watch that all the time, and I'm just thinking, man, what this guy could have done with better knees. And he accomplished a lot just, you know, what he, what he accomplished with the knees. You know what I mean? He could have accomplished so much more, but what he did accomplish – with those bad knees is incredible. I'll never forget, you guys remember, I don't know if you remember, Matt, remember old football digest? Remember the little magazine? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. I still there have some. A, yeah, so do I. There was an article in one of the, in the football digest in the late 70s where it said, doctors gave Joe five years, he thrilled us for 13. And that's the way I look at it. Most doctors didn't think he was going to last long because of those knees, but he did. And you talk about a courageous guy going out there and, and playing with those bad knees like that. So I've, I've, I've always been a Joe Namath fan. Absolutely. And if you've never seen him play, it's worth watching what Pat's talking about because he was like a gazelle out there just floating. Uh, it, the, his feet were, were impeccable. And with the injuries, he still made it look simple. But after the game, I remember when they had interviewed him, his knees were in, uh, packed with ice and everything, the pain that he played through every single game. And yet on the field, he made it look like he was, you know, a whole, a whole body, perfectly specimen. He, he was amazing. He was amazing. But to listen to him, he didn't really complain about it. He just went out there and, and talked up his team. He, it, really a great teammate. He took care of his guys. You know, another uh, football player I wanted to mention, and we're just going to start throwing out some names of, of athletes who, you know, careers were shortened or or – altered because of, you know, outside forces. I wanted to bring up another guy who played right around the time Joe Namath did in the same state, matter of fact, in upstate New York. And I know he's a pariah, but I want to mention O.J. Simpson because this guy, he retired at the age of 32 in 1979. He was basically done at the age of 30 
1977. He missed uh, 16 games the last two years of his career because of the knee injuries. The knees just couldn't uh, hold up. When O.J. quit, he was the second leading rusher in NFL history behind Jim Brown. He was about, I think, about 1,100 yards behind Brown in their careers. And again, if Simpson had had better knees and could have played at full health, even those last two years with the 49ers, there's a good chance he would have passed Jim Brown and become the all-time leading rusher. Unfortunately, what happened in 1994 has totally overshadowed him as a football player. In fact, I heard earlier this week that a Buffalo Bills running back is going to wear number 32 this upcoming season, which will be the first time in 42 years that anybody has worn 32 for the Buffalo Bills. But O.J. Simpson's another guy whose career was curtailed a little bit because of knee problems. Yeah, it's very common to see that. O.J. Simpson, again, a fantastic running back. The person overshadows what he was as a football player. But, you know, you mentioned with being within 1,100 yards of Jim Brown's record by the time he retired at 32. You know, unfortunately, he wasn't the only guy in that era whose knees as a running back just cost him from from what could have been an even greater career. I mean, a fantastic career, wound up in the Hall of Fame, but... You know, you wonder what could have been had he had a couple more years healthy. Well, you know, that's one thing about the athletes. They're, the knees always seem to go. And there's been so many great athletes in regards to knees that have to be cut short. But take away what O.J. did <laughs> in this latter part of his life. He was a fantastic running back. Mm-hmm. The Buffalo Bills were, uh, were been nobody without him. And... He just had the moves. He had it all. Uh, he, he really was wonderful to, to watch and follow. Uh, really a great running back. Not only that, but even in his movie years, you know, he, he went in, on to movies, and it, it was fun watching him in the movies and then doing the, uh, the uh, rent-a-car commercials when, with his moves. Uh, a, a sad, sad story uh, with his injury, why he had to leave, but even a saddest story as an individual later on in his life, uh, which will always probably be known O.J. Simpson uh, for his latter part. Well, especially with the younger generation, you know, the people who don't remember him as a running back or, or even as a broadcaster, you know, who weren't alive in 1994 or may have been very small children and don't remember the whole Bronco chase and, and all that. Yeah, that's how they're going to remember O.J. Simpson, unfortunately, and not the football player. That he, that he was, and one of the most popular athletes in the country back in the mid-'70s. So, you know, another running back I wanted to throw out uh, of that same period, you had to throw out Gale Sayers, uh, the Kansas Comet here in Chicago, um, a guy who was so exciting to watch. I mean, uh, you watch NFL films of him early in his career, and he just had that gliding running motion. I mean, this is a guy who scored six touchdowns in one game his rookie year in 1965. Unfortunately, he was taken out on a hit by Kermit Alexander of the 49ers in a game in 1968. He missed the the latter half of that season. He came back in 1969 and gained over 1,000 yards, won comeback player of the year. It truly was an amazing story. Unfortunately, that was the end of the line for for Sayers. In 1970, he only played in a couple of games. He only played in a couple of games in 1971, and he was finished after the 1971 season. He was only 28 years old and those last two seasons were a complete bust so he basically was done as an effective running back a great running back 
when he was 26 years old. That's incredible. Think about what would have happened if Gale Sayers been healthy for another four or five years. You're probably talking about him as maybe breaking Jim Brown's records. And, you know, this is a guy who still holds 20 bear records as a running back, you know, or return man or receiver. You know, he holds so many records still. Four-time pro bowler. And, you know, he still holds the all-time record for touchdowns in the season by a rookie, which is incredible. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And that was in 1965. Yeah. And you mentioned the videos. I remember watching some of those videos growing up, you know, seeing Gale Sayers and the, the gray and the black and white videos and just the awful weather and raining, but yet the guy would just still be running around people. It didn't matter. As you mentioned he was a, a, a Kansas Comet. You know, the guy was a good sell. He could just run for days and days and days. And, you know, it's a shame because we never know how – Truly great, Gale Sayers could have been for suffering that for those three key years. In 1965, his rookie year, he scored a total of 22 touchdowns. That was running, receiving, and he was a great kick returner, which people forget too. He had 22 touchdowns on 232 touches. That's that's, that's nuts. incredible. That's nuts back then. Well, a lot, you know, a lot of football players went down uh, big time because of injuries that happened to them. And football in itself really doesn't have a long lifespan. No. I mean, besides being a quarterback, you're really the rest of them are cut pretty short. And, I mean, there's a list. You mentioned Jim Brown, another one. Phenomenal. The, the greatest of my time. Uh, how about Bo Jackson? I mean, he, he, talking about another uh, football player that actually played baseball on top of that. I mean, there's, there's so many football players that you can think of that have just been injury-prone and cut short, shorter than normal. And, yeah, 26 years old to be finished and done what he did. And Gail was also really known more or more on the better part is what he did with his teammate Brian Piccolo. Um, and the, the uh, Brian song movie uh, really put him on a map itself. God, I mean, I'm again, being a New Yorker, not from here, when I saw that movie in itself, believe it or not, I became a Bears fan. I got a football helmet, and I uh, painted it, and I put the big C on it, and uh, in in you know, in memory of Brian, but also Gail put it on the map, and it was some good times there. You know, you mentioned Jim Brown, and and we don't know how many yards Jim Brown would have gained if had he not retired to make movies. I mean, that was his own decision, but still, he retired in his prime. You know, I think Jim Brown could have played another three or four years and gained a lot of yards, and maybe he'd still be the all-time leading rusher. We don't know, but that was a decision he made. But you mentioned Bo Jackson, you know, with the hip problem. He got hurt in that playoff game after the 1990 season. He dislocated his hip, and that was it. He did make somewhat of a comeback in baseball, but he couldn't in football. And Again, you know, what would Bo Jackson have done if he had not been hurt? He was only, I believe, 29 years old when his career came to an end. So, um we don't know. Another football player I wanted to throw out, and, and this is a name that I don't know if a lot of people know who this is, but it was definitely a tragedy. And uh, the guy's name is Chuck Hughes. He was a wide receiver for the Detroit Lions. He died of a heart attack on the field in a game in 1971. Old Tiger Stadium, the Bears were playing the Lions. Uh, he dropped. He, he was running back to the huddle after a play, and all of a sudden he went down. And nobody really knew what was wrong with him, and he ended up dying of a heart attack. He was only 27 years old. And 
again, I mean, besides, you know, leaving behind a family and that whole tragedy, just taking this from the football point of view, it's like, wow, you just don't think of a 27-year-old guy dying of a heart attack. No, that's horrible. That's horrible in front of all the people there and everything, and to just to go down, again, talk about tragedy and, and well, if anything, he died doing what he loved, but not many people know about that. That's that's yeah. that's a quiet one, you know. And and also don't forget, uh, uh, while we're on football, you got Earl Campbell. And there, there's another guy that just you know, what he did was uh, uh, amazing. Uh, but knee surgery, spinal surgery, nerve issues. He played uh, from '78 to '84, and was one of the all-time leaders. I mean, for six years, what he did in those six years were amazing. Um, but again, injuries just cut these guys short. Well, Campbell, the, his running style was the cause of that. He was just a guy who just loved contact and just would hit guys. He'd dish out as much punishment as the defensive yep. backs and linebackers went on him. So that's the reason why Earl Campbell's career was cut short. But you're right. Boy, for, for the first three or four years in the league, he was the man. He, he was the best running back in the NFL, and it wasn't even close. I mean, he was he was a heck of a player. Um any other football players? Or, you know? No, no. I, okay. I, no, I, I wanted to move on to baseball, um, and I wanted to start with J.R. Richard. Mm-hmm. Uh, J.R. Richard, a pitcher for the Houston Astros, um, he had a stroke at the age of 30 in 1980. It was shortly after the All-Star game. The Astros were working out at the Astrodome, and he had a stroke. He had been complaining a couple of weeks before that about a dead arm. He didn't feel right. Um, the doctors either misdiagnosed him or just couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And unfortunately, he had a stroke, and that was the end of his career. He was only 30 years old, and that was in 1980. Uh, the three previous seasons, J.R. Richard had won 18 games each, each year, and then he won 20 games the year before that. So, And he was 10-4 and four at the All-Star break in 1980 when he had the stroke. So he was on his way to becoming that dominant pitcher. He led the, the National League in strikeouts the year before, and you think, well, you know, if Nolan, if um, J.R. Richard hadn't had the stroke, he would have been with Nolan Ryan and Joe Negro in the 1980 playoffs against the Phillies. Maybe it changes the whole dynamic of the franchise. Maybe Houston goes on to win the World Series that yeah. year. Who knows? But J.R. Richard had a rough life after that. Uh, he was homeless for a while. Um, I know he's found the Lord. He's doing some some work, uh, you know, as a minister and. Uh, it's good to see he's still alive and still healthy and everything, but from a baseball standpoint, who knows what J.R. Richard would have done. I mean, he was well on his way to becoming a superstar pitcher. No question about it. He was feared. People, <laughs> the batters were really scared going up Well, he was 6'8". <laughs> I mean, he, he really should have played basketball. I mean, he, was, uh, he could have done basketball no problem at all. And uh, when he got the offer from Houston, he jumped all over it. And I think he, uh, yeah, it was the time he was out there, what's his name wasn't around. I think he was considered the tallest pitcher at, at, at its time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they feared him. He, he, he was nasty. He had <laughs> a nasty pitch. But, uh, again, to, to go down and, and have a heart attack and just what, what the sad part is, and you mentioned he was homeless. How did these guys, how did these agents, how did they let their, their people go to 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 that level 
I don't understand that, man. I mean, you yeah. know, so many times, and this is unfortunate, so many times in sports, it's what have you done for me lately? And if you can't do anything for me, I'm done with you. And, and you're right. The agents, even the Astros themselves really didn't do right by him. It's almost like, well, you know, you were great at one time, but you can't do anything for this team now or do anything for me personally. So, And they push you off to the side, and it's unfortunate. It's, it's just not the way we should treat another human being. But but we do. In this cutthroat because world. Because it's we money, do. money, money again, the yeah. greed. You know, I mean, a poor guy like that, he didn't ask for that stroke and heart attack. He didn't no. ask for that. And, and then you just let him go to the streets. It, there's got to be, I know they have these committees, you know, to watch over some of these players or give, give them some direction. But there really needs a better, better situation for all sports. All sports. I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. But, you know, the good thing is he is still alive. He's still healthy. Um, you know, so, I mean, it, he had a rough patch in his life, but it seems to have worked out for him. But from a baseball point of view, it's just sad because uh, you just don't know. You just don't know what he'd have done. Um, another guy I wanted to mention was a guy named Herb Score. Uh, Herb Score, in 1955, uh, broke in as a rookie. He went 16-10. and 10. The following year, he went 20-9. and 9, So he was well off. Uh, off to a very good career. In a game in May of 1957, uh, Gil McDougald of the New York Yankees hit a line drive back up the middle, and it hit Herb Score in the eye. And he was never the same after that. He did make a comeback with the White Sox, I believe in 59 or 60, but he was he was done as a pitcher. He couldn't see right, and it, it affected how he threw the ball and everything. And, you know, he led the league in strikeouts his first two seasons in the majors. So, again, this guy's off to a great start. A freak injury like that gets hit in the eye with a line drive, ends his career. We just don't know what Herb Score would have done. Herb Score, by the way, was on Cleveland at the time. I don't know if I mentioned that. But we don't know what Herb Score would have done. You well, know, if you're looking at the uh, at that kind of situation, we got Tony Carignano from, uh, from Boston yep. talking about an injury and hitting the eye. Uh, that was it. That was the end. He tried coming back several times, but this kid from Boston itself, the home, you talk about a homegrown player, you know, getting hit in the eye. I mean, you don't know what Herb could have done. Again, he could have done nothing. That would might have been it anyway, or that's the best he would have gotten. But getting hit with an injury in the eye, when especially when baseball is coming at you with a little bullet, you got to hit that thing. That in itself is amazing. Even when you're, you know, healthy and proper and everything, it's hard enough. But trying to adjust from an eye injury, man, it's rough, guys. It really is. And unfortunately, Tony Canigliaro's life would would uh, would go even further south. He eventually became a broadcaster, and then in 1990, at the age of 45, he suffered a heart attack and passed away. So, um, I believe his record has been broken. I believe it's been broken, but I believe at one time he was the fast or the youngest guy, the youngest guy to 100 career homers. I think he was like 22 years old, and he already had 100 career homers. He was hitting the eye. Uh, Jack Hamilton of the Angels in a game in 1967 hit Tony Canigliaro in the eye with a pitch, and it was never the same after that. He did make somewhat of a comeback. He had one good year with the Angels, I think, in the early 70s, but that was it for Tony Canigliaro. So, um, that's that's a good one that you brought up there, Ron. 
You know, another guy I wanted to bring up, and I know this will hit home with you, Ron. I wanted to bring up a couple of New York Yankees. And, of course, the first guy we have to bring up is Thurman Munson. Uh, mm. Dead of a plane crash at the Nin- age of 32. August 1979. August 2nd, 1979, 32 years old. Practicing uh, takeoffs and landings at the Akron-Canton Airport. Ends up crashing. Um, dies. And I think you can make a case right now that Thurman Munson should be in the Hall of Fame. I think if he doesn't die and plays another five or six years, even some of those years would have been as a DH. He would have caught all those games. Even as a DH, I think Thurman Munson would be in the Hall of Fame today. He was on par with Johnny Bench. That's the way I'd have to put it. I remember the day where I was working. I was actually a travel agent in my office when I got the news, and it, it, it shut me down. It shut down... New York City was in really despair, like, oh, my God. I mean, uh, that was a a major, major hit, no question about it. Uh, It destroyed us as Yankee fans. It was a sad situation for the Munson family. Um, Yes, Pat, he would have actually been a Hall of Famer. No question about it. He, talking about a true captain, of a, uh, what a captain would have mean for a team, he, the guts, he would have been in your face because he would have been in your face type of guy. He would have figured out something to motivate you to get whatever the best performance that you can give. He was there. He, he was a teammate. He, he, that's a guy you wanted to be in a foxhole with if you ever needed to be. Tough, rugged, a diehard, and... Uh, Pride of the Yankees at the time. I have to tell you, though, and I, I've had this argument with a buddy of mine who's a Yankee fan. He would have ended his career in Cleveland. He would have been a Cleveland Indian. He had tired of New York. He got tired of uh, the, the rat race. Well, he got tired of Reggie Jackson. Thing. That was he the got big tired part of, of that. He got tired of Steinbrenner, too. And there's no doubt. And he wanted to go home. And that's why he was learning how to fly, so he could go home more often. There's no doubt in my mind, after another year or two, he would have ended his last three, four years, he would have been a Cleveland Indian. Uh, maybe, maybe. I, so. I mean, uh, uh, yes, he was going home. I think it was a new plane that he was uh, checking out because he was going home a lot on that. And um, it was, well, I don't know if the Yankees would have let him go. I mean, he would he was the captain. I mean, how many captains leave their team? But he'd have been a free agent. He'd have been a free agent at some point and would have left. Well, I, I think he wanted out of New York that badly. I, I I think he just got tired of the entire rat race. Well, he was around when they called so, the zoo. Yeah, And exactly. that was the whole thing. That's what I mean. He got and tired of the whole thing. And I think he'd have been gone, but I, I guess we'll never know. Um, the other Yankee I wanted to bring up, and this one might be kind of a strange one because he did have an incredible career and a Hall of Fame career. But I did want to bring up Mickey Mantle, and here's the reason why. First of all, he was done at the age of 37, so he probably lost two or three years off the tail end of his career. Um, But his career, forget 1951 for a minute when he was a rookie, and forget 1963 when he missed almost the entire season. Mickey Mantle missed 280 games in his career to injuries. That's a season almost a season and three quarters that he missed. This is a man who had 536 homers, drove home over 1,500 runs. And, yeah, he had the great career. He won the MVPs. He won the Triple Crown. He won the the World Series. But you're talking about a guy who easily would have hit 600 homers, maybe 650 
mm-hmm. if he didn't lose all those games to injuries. And granted, a lot of it was self-induced. We know he had the bad knee because of what happened in 51. and But he drank a lot because he didn't think he was going to live long because well, men, men in his family didn't live long. Yeah. And he, he admitted he, at the end of his life, he admitted, if I knew I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. Well, a big blame on that uh, was Billy Martin. Well, of course. Billy Martin really hurt that team because Billy was an alcoholic already. He turned Mickey into it. He almost had Yogi and Whitey fall into the whole category. Uh, well, he uh, I'd argue he did have Whitey. He didn't get Yogi, but he had Whitey. Well, Whitey, Mickey, and Billy did a lot of drinking together. Yes, they did. They did a lot of drinking and together. It's amazing that Whitey's still with us. Correct. Uh, he is the uh, <laughs> the main man, but he Billy Martin is really who destroyed uh, Mickey and made his career shortened. And he could have done a lot better. And he had a lot of strikeouts because a lot of nights before he just couldn't see the ball anymore in the morning or in the afternoon when they played. Uh, yeah, that knee injury it it destroyed him. If it was, and he was still the fastest guy going. At the time, he was still one of the fastest ball players there ever were. And with the power and everything that hit him, Pat, you're probably right. He probably could have hit a 600 or more. But it was just cut short. The injuries, the knees, just was bad. If you ever watched the movie 61, um, you would see a lot more stuff of what happened w- with Mickey and, and Roger Maris and, and the pains and everything that he went through. Um, you know, the... The thing about Mantle is you can kind of understand, you know, his father died, uh, I think, at 39. His uncle died young because they all worked in the coal mines, got black lung and died. And Mickey just assumed that was, you know, the way the family went, that all the men were going to die early. And he just didn't take care of himself. He did a lot of drinking, like you said, late night carousing. Um, You know, there's a scene in the the movie 61 where Maris and Mantle get into an argument. And Maris is like, look what you did today, one arm. Why don't you go take care of yourself? You know, and Mantle starts screaming back at him. So, you know, again, you know, you just sit back and think, boy, what these guys could have done if, if there weren't these outside forces. And a couple other guys I wanted to bring well, up. On your Yankees, can I bring one up? Well, go ahead. I got a couple more Yankees, but go ahead. All right. Well, maybe Don Mattingly? Was he one of those? Don Mattingly? No, no, but okay. Don Mattingly's a good one. He is a good guy that was basically played with back injuries for the latter part of his career that really could have made him into a true Hall of Famer, and possibly uh, that he could have been actually finally won a World Series. He would have lasted that long when the Yankees won it. But because of the back injuries, you, you know, the hitman had to go down and stop because he just couldn't stand up anymore and swing a bat. And again, a lot of injuries due to that. And uh, another Yankee captain going down to injuries. You know, I, I make the argument that you could make a case for Mattingly for the Hall of Fame now. If you look at his career, along with Kirby Puckett's, and, and Kirby's another one. He had to retire at 32 because of, gl- of glaucoma in the eye. But their career statistics are very similar. The, the one difference is, is Puckett won two World Series and Manningly didn't. And I don't know if I've said this before on the air, but I've said this to a friend. I truly believe that Don Manningly is being punished to a certain degree because he's the one great Yankee that never won a World Series. Every other great Yankee won a World Series, at least one, except for Don Mattingly. And I think either subconsciously or whatever, the voters have held that against him, and that's why I think he hasn't gotten into the Hall of Fame. I would agree with that, yeah. 
you think of the Yankees and you think of all the Yankee greats, everyone wins the World Series. And to be the one guy in that you know chain that doesn't win it, I, I think he is unfairly punished. You know, when you look at Don Mattingly, he's a premier first baseman. And he was. And he had he to quit. Absolutely was. And the sad thing is he quit after the 95 season and the Yankees won the World Series the following year. Yeah, so that's that what I'm saying. He could have he, yeah. he could have been part of that. That's when Tino dynasty. came in. Yep. The other two guys I wanted to mention didn't really make their mark with the Yankees, but they were Yankees. And these are two guys that we've talked about before, but it's worth bringing up again. First one is Dwight Gooden. Uh, Gooden wa- finished his career with 194 career wins. Um, the last double-digit winning season he had was in 1996 when he was 32. He had 11 wins. His last big season was in 1990 when he won 19. He was only 26 then. So basically, Dwight Gooden was finished as a very good pitcher around 30 years old. Again, 194 wins, all those strikeouts. Again, if he had laid off the drugs, and it was drugs with him. Coke. Coke was his thing. Exactly. There's yeah. there's no reason why Dwight Gooden. I mean, when he burst onto the scene... In 1984, he went 17-9. People were like, who is this kid? He was 19 years old. He comes back in 1985. He goes 24-4. The following year, the Mets win the World Series. You're thinking maybe a dynasty here. That didn't work out. And then, like I said, by 1990, he's got his last major winning season. And then for most of the 90s, he's bouncing around, winning a few games here or there. Yeah, he threw a no-hitter for the Yankees in 96. But basically, his career was over by 30. Mm. Well, I was there for both. I saw him with the Mets, and I saw him with the Yankees. And uh, it, it was a phenomenal deal. But unfortunately, he hooked up with Daryl Strawberry well, with the Mets, and their careers just went south. And Strawberry came over to the Yankees, and his career took off in belief, and he cleaned up his act. Dwight came over and just didn't have that same cleanup. He it was too overpowering, man. The Coke just took him down. And you mentioned the other guy I was going to mention, Daryl Strawberry. Here's a guy after 1991. He was only 27 years old. and I'm sorry, 29 years old in 1991. He only had one season after 1991 where he played in over 100 games, and that was in 1998. Daryl Strawberry finished his career with 355 homers. 280 of those homers came through 1991. So at the age of 29... He had almost 300 career homers, and the rest of the decade was pretty much shot. He made a little bit of a comeback in 98. He had 24 homers for the Dodgers. But, again, the drugs just ruined his career. You're talking about a guy, 500 homers easy. Oh, for sure. Just the way he no, no question about it. He was on pace for that, except him and Dwight, they, they were the party boys. They absolutely were the party boys in New York at the time. And yep. I was yeah. there, I could tell you that. Yeah, that's <laughs> it was the bad. For one party boy, yeah, I'm another party boy. Yep. Yeah. Another guy, uh, I wanted to br- actually two more baseball players I wanted to bring up, and then I'll check with you guys if you have more baseball players. One was Ray Chapman. Uh, Ray Chapman's the only guy who was killed uh, because of what happened on the field. In 1920, he was beamed in the head with a pitch by Carl Mays. This is back in the days when they did not wear helmets, they just wore their hats. He got beamed in the temple. They took him off the field. He was conscious. He lived through the night, but he died the next morning. And uh, Ray Chapman, I believe, was only 27 or 28 years old when he was killed. He was a shortstop for Cleveland. So who knows what Ray Chapman would have done. The other guy was Lyman Bostock. I don't know if you remember him. He was an outfielder for the Twins. He had a fantastic season in 1976 and 77. 
He was a free agent after the 1977 season. He signs on with the California Angels. Gene Autry owned the team at the time. This is 1978 now. He gets off to a very rough start. In fact, he had a very bad first month of the season. Lyman Bostock offered to give back some of his salary. Mm. Now, how many athletes today Not would be doing that? Not many at None. all. Gene Autry said, no, 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 no. You, you're trying. You go out. It'll come. Well, Bostock got his average up to around 300 by the end of the season. There's only a couple of weeks left of the regular season. Late September 1978. It's after a day game at Comiskey Park. He's over in Gary, Indiana, visiting some friends, and he was with a woman who was a friend of his, but her, uh, I think it was her estranged husband, was in the car behind him, fired a couple of shots into the back of the car, trying to hit his wife, ends up killing Lyman Bostock. He's only 27 years old, just reaching the pinnacle of his career. I mean, he probably would have been great for another five or six seasons, but... Instead, his life was snuffed out 27 years old. Yeah, that's rough. That is really a horrible way to go. And just being talk about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> that certainly was it, man. That's Do you have any other baseball players? Uh, Sandy Koufax, man. Sure. Arthritic uh, in, in the elbow and shoulder. And talking about uh, the greatest pitcher of that time, too. Cut short of injuries. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, I can tell you, you caught it good. Siri doesn't <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sandy Koufax, uh, out, you know, who knows where he could have ended up. But you know, he, he's always brought around uh, with numbers and speed and awesome. Well, 30 years old when he had to retire after the 1966 season, as you mentioned, the arthritic elbow. Doctors told him, look, you keep throwing a baseball, you may not have use of that arm later in life. And he's like, well, that's enough for me. I'm, I'm stepping away. And in Ken Burns' baseball series, if you watch the one in the 60s, they actually have his retirement press conference on there, uh, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, one other guy, I, I just thought of him. Uh, we mentioned him last in our last podcast about strikeout pitchers, Sam McDowell mm. uh, of the Cleveland Indians, a guy who had alcohol problems, uh, had to retire at the age of 33, but was basically done as an effective pitcher at about the age of 30. So... Pitchers, I mean, we could we could do an entire show yeah. just on pitchers. What about Roberto Clemente? Uh, Roberto was near the end of his career. He was 38 when he was killed in the plane crash. Probably would have played another year or two, but um, Roberto was pretty much near the end of his career at that point. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a couple. I have Mark Pryor. Mm -hmm. about Mark Pryor, he came on you know, very fast in the Cubs, went 18-6 in 2003, an all-star. Uh, that was his best year, 2.43 ERA. 245 strikeouts. We could debate whether it was Dusty Baker that led to the demise of his career, or was it Mark Pryor that he just wasn't built to be a long-time pitcher? But he had 20 or more starts from 03 to 05, had 11 wins in 05, and you never heard from Mark Pryor again. He made a few starts in 06, and then all you saw was him throwing Gatorade towels in the Wrigley Field bullpen. And Mark Pryor, you really wonder what would have happened to that Cubs team had maybe he not been run into the ground, you know, in 03, uh, what would have happened for the Cubs, you know? There are people who believe that Mark Pryor's career took a turn. There was a play against the Atlanta Braves, 
Uh, Marcus Giles came to field a ground ball. Pryor was running down the baseline and flipped over Giles yep. and landed yeah. somewhat on his arm. And even though he continued to pitch for a little while afterwards, there are people who believe that play may have done something to his shoulder and maybe altered his delivery just a little bit. That's all it takes. Yeah. You put a little more strain on the arm, a little more strain on the shoulder. There's some people who think that play, just a, uh, an innocent-type play, may have uh, you know helped end his career. Uh, yeah, there's plenty of people. Because him landing on that shoulder, you're right. He came back that year. But then after that, he really wasn't ever the same. This is a guy with a devastating curveball, great fastball. It's just a tremendous pitcher to watch. And, you know, and I know I've talked about it before, but one of my favorite games was Game 3 in that NLDS in Wrigley mm-hmm. between him and Greg Maddox. Both of them dueling Maddox, having the cutter on on all night. I, I want to say it was a 2-1 Cubs victory. It was just it was tremendous, and Pryor pitched into the eighth inning in that game, if if he didn't get out of the eighth inning. But, um, you know, Mark Pryor, to me, is one of the guys who comes up and, you know, mo- very recently, you know, Jose Fernandez, the guy was 38 and 17 at the time of his passing. You know, we all know he took some drugs, got behind a boat, wound up crashing in the bay uh, in Miami. And uh, But he's the guy who was a two-time All-Star. He was a Rookie of the Year. Uh, you know, he had a career 2.58 ERA, 589 strikeouts, and a whip of 1.05. He was 16-8 and eight in 2016, the year that he passed. Uh, 250, 253 strikeouts, 2.86 ERA, with a you know a fantastic whip as well. But Jose Fernandez, you know, there's a lot of people that think that this Marlins franchise would be somewhere else right now, you know, in a different space competitively, if Jose Fernandez had not passed. He was their ace. He was the guy who carried them in games, and would not only that was a Miami legend, being a local boy. Right, and I've I've heard the same thing that if Jose Fernandez doesn't die, you know they don't get rid of Stanton, they don't get rid of Ozuna, they don't get rid of Yelich, they don't get rid of Realmuto, they don't get rid of you know five more other guys we could name because Jose Fernandez was the rock of that franchise and they could have built around him on that pitching staff. So you're right, the, the Jose Fernandez's death may have completely changed the the course of what the Miami Marlins are doing, and we know right now in 2019 they're doing a whole lot of nothing. There's not there's not much talent down there, and and the people don't come to the games right now. So right. whether Derek Jeter can help turn this around, um, we'll have to see. Right. Yeah, I do have a one more. Josh Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Speaking about Josh Hamilton, you know, guy didn't get his career out, you know, until he was 28. It's a guy who was first overall pick in 1999. Gets in a car accident in 01. It starts the drug and alcohol problems that he had for years. It's a guy who hit 200 home runs, 700 RBIs. You think of the drug problems, but also think about the injuries that followed him right after his mm-hmm. Texas. You know, he had an incredibly successful tenure in Texas from 08 to 12. Five-time All-Star, wins the MVP in 2011, or 2010. It's the ALCS MVP in 2010. Almost wins the World Series. Uh, you know, if not for a fluke fly ball, the Texas Rangers win the World Series in 2010 right. over the St. Louis Cardinals. But, you know, the drug addiction, you wonder... He hit 200 home runs, a majority of them with the Texas Rangers, before he went to the Angels. What would his career have been had he not lost the first eight years, you know, uh, or, you know, six, seven years from 01 to 07 with drug problems and all that? And then what would have happened had he not, you know, because his body broke down because of all the abuse that he did to it early on? 
you know, this is a guy who should have had a lot more productive careers after 2012, but he really did fall off the face of the earth mm -hmm. as soon as he signed with the Los Angeles Angels, trying to make a brief comeback with the Texas Rangers, and wound up uh, retiring a couple of years ago. It's a guy who's actually very happy to be in Animini right now, and I just saw an interview with him this week. They were finally able to track him down and see where he is because he's getting his number retired in Texas right in the summer. Right. No, I agree that uh, he had really a bizarre career. Uh, you know, he lost some time in the beginning, yeah. and then he, he would have relapses uh, every so often. Guys, I want to move on to— Can I uh, get one more? Sure. Roy Campanella? Oh, sure, with the car accident. Car sure. accident. Yeah. Uh, one of the greatest catchers. Yeah. I have one really, really quick. Truest Joe Jackson. Think about it. Coming oh, out gosh. of the game at 33. Uh, we're going to do – we should do a podcast sometimes yeah. on the Black Sox scandal. I, I don't feel sorry for Joe Jackson. I, I, I do. I, he was a crook. <laughs> at the end of the, I, the, end of the I, day, I he feel, was a crook. I feel oh. sorry for him because I don't so. think that he was – I don't think, well, he, I don't think he was a regulator or anything, but we'll I'll say that say argument. He would have gotten well over two thousand yes. hits, close to three thousand hits. Would have been in the Hall of Fame, no if doubt. Not for the scandal I, yep. and other guys, you know, controlling him. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. But we'll have to argue that out yes. sometime because uh, I just don't quite think he's the victim that people made him out to be. Anyway, let's move on to hockey here, guys. Uh, before we wrap this up, I want to talk real quickly about Bobby Orr. Um, this is a guy in his last full season, which was the 74-75 season, he scored 135 points in that season, and he played the Canada Cup in 1976 basically on one knee and was still one of the best players out there. I read a quote from Dennis Potvin of the New York Islanders who said, man, it was absolutely amazing to watch this guy. He was on one knee, and he was better than most of us out there. He would make a, he would get, come to the Blackhawks for just a short, short period. He was done by then. But uh, Bobby Orr was effectively done as a hockey player at the age of 27. And, again, you think about what he did accomplish with those bad knees. He's sort of in the same boat with Joe Namath. You look at what they did accomplish with those bad knees, then yeah. you say to yourself, what more would they have accomplished? You know, maybe Bobby Orr would be considered the greatest hockey player ever. Uh, I've got him number two on my all-time list behind Gretzky. But maybe if Orr had been able to play another seven or eight years, he'd be hands down be the best player ever. Well, I saw him in his prime also, and well, if you want to call it prime, I, I watched him and while he battled my Rangers, and no question about it, he, he, kudos to him. Phenomenal player. Pat, uh, probably at its time, one of the best at the ever. And unfortunately, so many injuries. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, come on, Bobby Orr. All-time great, but you're right. You know, his career cut short by injuries and playing on one knee. Uh, you really do wonder, what will you been? Where would he have been in statistical books had he been able to play even longer? You know, Bobby Orr. He's right up there with Gretzky. No oh, question oh, about he's it. No, oh, he's right there. He's number two. He's number two on my list, guys. Yep. Yeah. Um, one last hockey name I want to throw out, um, and this is a sad story, but Blackhawk, if you're a Blackhawk historian, you know who Charlie Gardner is. Charlie Gardner was the goalie for the Blackhawks when he won the Stanley Cup in 1934. He went 6-1-1 in the playoffs that year with a 1.33 goals against average. He had been having trouble with his tonsils, and uh, it was affecting other parts of his body. And about a month after they won the Stanley Cup in the summer of 1934, Charlie Gardner died of a brain hemorrhage in his homeland of Scotland. He was only 29 years old. And you just couldn't help to think that you know modern medicine would have cured what right. he had. And, and who knows, maybe the Blackhawks win another couple of cups. They did win a cup 
four years later in 38, obviously with a different goalie, but maybe they won two or three in a row. You just don't know. And uh, Charlie Gardner definitely goes down as one of the saddest stories around. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, especially with those early Blackhawks teams in the original six era. But I think about six, one and one, you know, you win, win the Stanley Cup and then you're dead uh, a month later. Um, it is one of the cautionary tales. It's a huge cautionary tale and, and you know, how things were done way in the past and what could have happened. It's, you know, I think one of the biggest what ifs in sports, for sure. Um, you know, I, I had one in hockey, a Mark Savard. Mm-hmm. About, you know, he, he sidelined with the concussions. And couldn't play for seven years. They had to wait for his contract to come out before he could actually retire due to the salary cap. But this is a guy who had 97, 96, 78, and 88 points in the four straight seasons from 05, 06 to 08, 09. And then, you know, all because of a hit from Matt Cook on the Pittsburgh Penguins. Really started with the concussion. Wasn't able to play for the Boston Bruins. Tried to play in 2011. Was only able to play a few games. Wasn't allowed to even travel with them. When they went to the cup final, there was the whole uh, pouring the water from Savard's water bottle onto the ice in Vancouver before game seven in the Stanley Cup final when they finally won the cup final. But Mark Savard, someone, a, a cautionary tale for head trauma, mm-hmm. especially in hockey. All these guys that have to spend their you know, months, if not years, away from their kids in dark rooms because the lights are bothering them. Chris Kroger, another one whose career ended a little bit before it should have as well. But Mark Savard, a 700-point scorer, but you wonder, this guy probably would have been a 1,000-point scorer had he not gotten the concussion. We're probably talking about Mark Savard as a potential, possible Hockey Hall of Famer had his career been allowed to play out as it should have been. Five-time 20-goal scorer as well. Ron, before we wrap it up, anybody want to throw Eric Lindros, Philadelphia Flyers, early cool 90s, man. Yep. Concussions and a bad misdiagnosis on his wrist killed that kid. Yep. He was the fastest uh, scorer. I mean, uh, really, who knows where he would have ended up. True. That's uh, a big loss True. in hockey yeah. itself. Yep. Watching him play was amazing, again, against my Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> Ray Emery, another one. Ray Emery. You know, with the degenerative hip. Right. You know, and, and, you know, God rest him, he's, he's in a better place now, but he also died way too young. But Ray Emery, I mean, you know, that guy should have been an even better goaltender, but he had the degenerative hip, wound up in Europe trying to find his game. It's a guy who was just was unable to stay healthy. I mean, he had the incredible run with the Blackhawks in 2013. But uh, Ray Emery is another, another guy. Yeah, well, I mean, this is just a, a partial list. I mean, this is by no means a comprehensive list. I've thought of three or four more guys just sitting here listening to you guys talk. Uh, maybe we have to do another show on this at some point and bring out some of the other names because there are so many, and uh, this is not a comprehensive list well, by any stretch. Basketball quickly? But, uh, yeah, go ahead and give us one real quick. Uh, Brandon Roy. Okay, Portland. Three-time three sure. All-Star, remember? Yep. He had to retire by the time he was 29 because of the bad knees, you know, yep. the microfracture knees, uh, had surgery, 07 Rookie of the Year. This guy was, you remember, he was incredible. Uh, you know, uh, you know, in that brief time for Portland, he revitalized Portland after, you know, being a powerhouse in the early 2000s. They had a couple down years. Brandon Roy comes along, and he winds up revitalizing that franchise, and then he's out of the league by 2012. Because of his knee. Bill so Walton. Well, yeah. we should do this again with maybe yeah. just one uh, sport. 
Either that Basketball or we can just do another one and just bring out a whole another list of names <laughs> in various sports because there are a lot. And like I said, I'm going to jot down a few names right now that I thought of. But, um, but yeah, again, want to thank everybody for listening. Um, athletes who uh, either lost prime because of outside forces, whatever those outside forces were. And, uh, you know, like I said, we, we can do another installment of this. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Sports Weekly Podcast. For Ron Pecorini and Matt Rosenberg, I'm Pat Cameron. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.